0: Sign up today at ButcherBox.com Sleepy and use code Sleepy to choose your free-for-a-year offer. Plus, get $20 off your first order. ButcherBox.com Sleepy. Eat well, sleep well.
1: Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with Therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts.
0: Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy, a podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. Tonight, I've got kind of a uh, sci-fi, sciencey thriller story for you to doze off to, uh, an author that we have not read on the show tonight, which I very much enjoy reading. But before we get to the bedtime story, I just want to profoundly thank all of our brand new patrons on Patreon.com, which is a site where you can go and pledge a couple bucks for an ad-free version of the show. So, this week's wonderful new patrons, Nell Briggs, Patty Dodd, Vivi Villarreal, Sarah, Oreo Burglar, and Whiskey Mittens. Thank you all so, so much for uh, being a part of making this show. It really, really means a lot. So, thank you. Thank you, thank you. And for anyone who doesn't know, um, these names that I just read are brand new supporters of Sleepy on Patreon.com, which is a website where you can directly support the people that make the things that you like. So if you like the Sleepy podcast, um, you can support it by going on Patreon and donating even $1 a month, which goes a really long way. And then if you give $2 a month, uh, like I said earlier, you get access to the ad-free version of the show. At $5 a month, you get access to our uh, exclusive poetry feed with over 50 extra episodes of the show where I read poetry that are not on the regular podcast. But no matter how much you donate, even if it's a dollar, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So, if you would like to be a part of making this show, just go to patreon.com. Slash Sleepy Radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski. And the cover-up for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. So tonight, I was in kind of a sci-fi mood. Recently, maybe it's because I recently watched Oppenheimer um I've yet to see Barbie as of the publishing of this episode, but I will be getting to that very soon um and weirdly enough, this story definitely reminds me a lot of uh Oppenheimer a little bit and uh in that it talks about uh splitting atoms and uh, it's very sci-fi and kind of like political and Uh, thriller-y it's a really great little story or at least these first couple chapters are the writing is great and it's by E.E. Smith uh, Edward Elmer Smith and it's called The Skylark of Space Uh, I really hope you like sleeping to stories like this. And if you do, let me know in uh, the replies on Spotify or or in the reviews of Apple Podcasts. I would love to know what you think of it. And tonight, you're going to hear these uh, first couple chapters read once so that you can fall deep, deep asleep. And then they're going to repeat themselves so that you can stay deep, deep asleep. And without further ado, The Skylark of Space, by Edward Elmer Smith. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow, just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. Chapter 1. The Occurrence of the Impossible Petrified with astonishment, Richard Seaton stared after the copper steam bath upon which he had been electrolyzing his solution of X, the unknown metal. For as soon as he had removed the beaker, the heavy bath had jumped endwise from under his hand as though it were alive. It had flown with terrific speed over the table, smashing apparatus and bottles of chemicals on its way, and was even now disappearing through the open window. He seized his prism binoculars and focused them upon the flying vessel, a speck in the distance. Through the glass, he saw that it did not fall to the ground, but continued on in a straight line, only its rapidly diminishing size showing the enormous velocity with which it was moving. It grew smaller and smaller and in a few moments disappeared utterly. The chemist turned as though in a trance. How was this? The copper bath he had used for months was gone, gone like a shot with nothing to make it go. Nothing, that is, except an electric cell and a few drops of the unknown solution. He looked at the empty space where it had stood, at the broken glass covering his laboratory table, and again stared out of the window. He was aroused from his stunned inaction by the entrance of his laboratory helper and silently motioned him to clean up the wreckage. What's happened, doctor? asked the assistant. Search me, Dan. I wish I knew myself, responded Seaton absently, lost in wonder at the incredible phenomenon of which he had just been witness. Ferdinand Scott, a chemist employed in the next room, entered breezily. Hello, Dickie. Thought I heard a racket in here, the newcomer remarked. Then he saw the helper busily mopping out the reeking mass of chemicals. Great balls of fire, he exclaimed. What have you been celebrating? Had an explosion? How, what, and why? I can tell you the what, and part of the how, Seaton replied thoughtfully. But as to the why, I am completely in the dark. Here's all I know about it and in a few words he related the foregoing incident. Scott's face showed in turn interest, amazement, and pitying alarm. He took Seaton by the arm. Dick, old Tom, I never knew you to drink or dough, but this stuff sure came out of either a bottle or a needle. Did you see a pink serpent carrying it away? Take my advice, old son if you want to stay in Uncle Sam's service and lay off the stuff, whatever it is. It's bad enough to come down here so far gone that you wreck most of your apparatus and lose the rest of it. But to pull a yarn like that is going too far. The chief will have to ask for your resignation, sure. Why don't you take a couple of days of your leave and straighten up? Seaton paid no attention to him and Scott returned to his own laboratory, shaking his head sadly. Seaton, with his mind in a whirl, walked slowly to his deck, picked up his blackened and battered briar pipe, and sat down to study out what he had done, or what could possibly have happened to result in such an unbelievable infraction of all the laws of mechanics and gravitation. He knew that he was sober and sane, that the thing had actually happened. But why, and how? All his scientific training told him that it was impossible, it was unthinkable, that an inert mass of metal should fly off into space without any applied force. Since it had actually happened, there must have been applied an enormous and hitherto unknown force. What was that force? The reason for this unbelievable manifestation of energy was certainly somewhere in the solution. The electrolytic cell, or the steam bath. Concentrating all the power of this highly trained analytical mind upon the problem, deaf and blind to everything else, as was his wont when deeply interested, he sat motionless with the forgotten pipe clenched between his teeth. Hour after hour he sat there while most of his fellow chemists finished the day's work and left the building and the room slowly darkened with the coming of night. Finally he jumped up crashing his hand down upon the desk he exclaimed I have liberated the interatomic energy of copper copper X and electric current. I'm sure a fool for luck he continued as a new thought struck him. Suppose it had been liberated all at once, probably blown the whole world off its hinges. But it wasn't. It was given off slowly and in a straight line. Wonder why? Talk about power. Infinite. Believe me, I'll show this whole bureau of chemistry something to make their eyes stick out tomorrow. If they won't let me go ahead and develop it, I'll resign, hunt up some more X, and do it myself. That bath is on its way to the moon right now, and there's no reason why I can't follow it. Martin's such a fanatic on exploration, he'll fall over himself to build us any kind of craft we'll need. We'll explore the whole solar system. Great cat, what a chance. A fool for luck is right. He came to himself with a start. He switched on the lights and saw that it was ten o'clock. Simultaneously, he recalled that he was to have dinner with his fiancée at her home, their first dinner since their engagement. Cursing himself for an idiot, he hastily left the building. And soon his motorcycle was tearing up Connecticut Avenue toward his sweetheart's home. Chapter 2 Steel Becomes Interested. Dr. Mark DeQuesney was in his laboratory, engaged in research upon certain of the rare metals, particularly in regard to their electrochemical properties. He was a striking figure, well over six feet tall, unusually broad shouldered even for his height. He was plainly a man of enormous physical strength. His thick, slightly wavy hair was black. His eyes, only a trifle lighter in the shade, were surmounted by heavy black eyebrows which grew together above his aquiline nose. Scott strolled into the room finding Dequezny leaning over a delicate electrical instrument, his forbidding but handsome face strangely illuminated by the ghastly glare of his mercury-vapor arcs. Hello, Scott began. I thought it was Seaton here at first. A fellow has to see your faces to tell you two apart. Speaking of Seaton, do you think that he's quite right? I should say, offhand, that he was a little out of control last night and this morning, replied DeQuesney, manipulating connections with his long, muscular fingers. I don't think that he's insane. I don't believe that he dopes. Probably overwork and nervous strain. He'll be all right in a day or two. I think he's a plain nut myself. That sure was a wild yarn he sprung on us, wasn't it? His imagination was hitting on all twelve, that sure. He seems to believe it himself, though, in spite of making a flat failure of his demonstration to us this morning. He saved that waste solution he was working on, what was left of that carboy of platinum residues after he had recovered all the values, you know, and got them to put it up at auction this noon. He resigned from the Bureau, and he and Mr. Reynolds Crane, that millionaire friend of his, bid on it for ten cents. Mr. Reynolds Crane, Dequesne concealed a start of surprise. Where does he come in on this? Oh, they're always together in everything. They've been thicker than Damon and Pythias for a long time. They play tennis together. They're doubles champions of the district, you know and all kinds of things. Wherever you find one of them, you'll usually find the other. Anyway, after they got the solution, Crane took seat in his car, and somebody said that they went out to Crane's house, probably trying to humor him. Well, Tata, I've got a week's work to do yet today. As Scott laughed, D'Quizny dropped his work and went to his desk with a new expression half of chagrin half of admiration on his face picking up his telephone he called a number Brookings he asked cautiously this is Dequesny. I must see you immediately there's something big started that might as well belong to us no can't say anything over the telephone Yes, I'll be right out. He left the laboratory and soon was in his private office of the head of the Washington or diplomatic branch as it was known in certain circles of the great World Steel Corporation. Offices and laboratories were maintained in the city ostensibly for research work but in reality to be near to the center of political activity. How do you do, Dr. Dequesny? Brooking said as he seated the visitor. You seem excited. Not excited, but in a hurry, Dequessny replied. "The biggest thing in history has just broken, and we've got to work fast if we get in on it. Have you any doubts that I always know what I am talking about? No, answered the other in surprise. Not the slightest. You are widely known as an able man. In fact, you have helped this company several times in various deal, or in various ways. Say it, Brookings. Deals is the right word. This one is going to be the biggest ever. The beauty of it is that it should be easy. One simple burglary and an equally simple killing. It won't mean wholesale murder, as did that. Oh no, doctor. Not murder. Unavoidable accidents. Why not call things by their right names and save breath, as long as we're alone? I'm not squeamish. But to get down to business. You know Seaton of our division, of course. He has been recovering the various rare metals from all the residues that have accumulated in the Bureau for years. After separating out all the known metals, he had something left and thought it was a new element, a metal. In one of his attempts to get it into a metallic state, a little of its solution fizzed out and over a copper steam bath or tank, which instantly flew out of the window like a bullet. It went clear out of sight, out of range of his binoculars just that quick he snapped his fingers under Brookings' nose. Now that discovery means such power as the world never dreamed of. In fact, if Seaton hadn't had all the luck in the world with him yesterday, he would have blown half of North America off the map. Chemists have known for years that all matter contains enormous stores of intraatomic energy, but have always considered it bound, that is, incapable of liberation. Seton has liberated it. And that means... that with the process worked out, the corporation could furnish power to the entire world, at very little expense. A look of scornful unbelief passed over Brookings' face. Sneer if you like, DeQuizny continued evenly. Your ignorance doesn't change the fact in any particular... Do you know what intraatomic energy is? I'm afraid that I don't exactly. Well, it's the force that exists between the ultimate component parts of matter, if you can understand that. A child ought to. Call in your chief chemist and ask him what would happen if somebody would liberate the intraatomic energy of 100 pounds of copper. Pardon me, doctor. I didn't presume to doubt you. I will call him in. He telephoned a request, and soon a man in white appeared. In response to the question, he thought for a moment, and smiled slowly. If it were done instantaneously, it would probably blow the entire world into a vapor, and might force it clear out of its orbit. If it could be controlled, it would furnish millions of horsepower for a long time. But it can't be done. The energy is bound. Its liberation is an impossibility, in the same class with perpetual motion. Is that all, Mr. Brookings? As the chemist left, Brookings turned again to his visitor, with an apologetic air. I don't know anything about these things myself. But Chambers, also an able man, says that it is impossible. As far as he knows, he is right. I should have said the same thing this morning. But I do know about these things. There's my business, and I tell you that Seton has done it. This is getting interesting. Did you see it done? No, it was rumored around the bureau last night that Seaton was going insane, that he had wrecked a lot of his apparatus and couldn't explain what had happened. This morning, he called a lot of us into his laboratory, told us what I have just told you, and poured some of his solution on a copper wire. Nothing happened, and he acted as though he didn't know what to make of it. The foolish way he acted and the apparent impossibility of the whole thing made everybody think him crazy. I thought so until I learned this afternoon that Mr. Reynolds Crane is backing him. Then I knew that he had told us just enough of the truth to let him get away clean with the solution. But suppose the man is crazy, asked Brookings. He probably is a monomaniac. Really insane on that one thing, from studying it so much. Seton? Yes, he's crazy. Like a fox. You never heard of any insanity in Crane's family, though, did you? You know that he never invests a cent in anything more risky than government bonds. You can bet your last dollar that Seaton showed him the real goods. Then as a look of conviction appeared upon the other's face. He continued. Don't you understand that the solution was government property, and he had to do something to make everybody think it worthless, so that he could get title to it? That fake demonstration that failed was certainly a bold stroke, so bold that it was foolhardy. But it worked. It fooled even me, and I am not usually asleep. The only reason he got away with it is that he has always been such an open-faced talker, always telling everything he knew. He certainly played the fox, he continued, with undisguised admiration. Heretofore, he has never kept any of his discoveries secret or tried to make any money out of them, though some of them were worth millions. He published them as soon as he found them, and somebody else got the money. Having that reputation, he worked it to make us think him a nut. He certainly is clever. I take off my hat to him. He's a wonder. And what is your idea? Where do we come in? You come in by getting that solution away from Seaton and Crane, and furnishing the money to develop the stuff, and to build, under my direction, such a power plant as the world never saw before. Why get that particular solution? Couldn't we buy up some platinum wastes and refine them? Not a chance, replied the scientist. We have refined platinum residues for years and never found anything like that before. It is my idea that the stuff, Whatever it is was present in some particular lot of platinum in considerable quantities as an impurity. Seton hasn't all of it there is in the world, of course, but the chance of finding any more of it without knowing exactly what it is or how it reacts is extremely slight. Besides, we must have exclusive control. How could we make any money out of it if Crane operates a rival company and dissatisfied with 10% profit. No, we must get all that solution. Seaton and Crane, or Seaton at least, must be killed. For if he is left alive, he can find more of the stuff and break our monopoly. I want to borrow your strong arm squad tonight and go and attend to it. After a few moments thought, his face set and expressionless, Brookings said. No, doctor. I do not think that the corporation would care to go into a matter of this kind. It is too flagrant a violation of law, and we can afford to buy it from Seaton after he proves its worth. Bah, snorted Quesney. Don't try that on me, Brookings. You think you can steal it yourself and develop it without letting me in on it? You can't do it. Do you think I am a fool enough to tell you all about it, with facts and figures and names, if you could get away with it without me? Hardly. You can steal the solution, but that's all you can do. Your chemist, or the expert you hire, will begin experimenting without Seton's lucky star, which I have already mentioned, but about which I haven't gone into any detail. He will have no information whatever, and the first attempt to do anything with the other stuff will blow him and all the country around him for miles into an impalpable powder. You will lose your chemist, your solution, and all hope of getting the process. There are only two men in the United States, or in the world for that matter, with brains enough and information enough to work it out. One is Richard B. Seaton. The other is Mark C. DeQuizny. Seatonly certainly won't handle it for you. Money can't buy him and Crane, and you know it. You must come to me. If you don't believe that now, you will very shortly, after you try it alone. Brookings, caught in his duplicity and half convinced of the truth of DeQuizny's statements, still temporized. You're modest, aren't you, doctor? He asked, smiling. Modest? No, said the other calmly. Modesty never got anybody anything but praise, and I prefer something more substantial. However, I never exaggerate or make overstatements, as you should know. What I have said is merely a statement of fact. Also, let me remind you that I am in a hurry. The difficulty of getting hold of that solution is growing greater every minute, and my price is getting higher every second. What is your price at the present second? $10,000 per month during the experimental work, $5 million in cash upon the successful operation of the first power unit, which shall be of not less than 10,000 horsepower and 10% of the profits. "'Oh, come, doctor. Let's be reasonable. "'You can't mean any such figures as those. "'I never say anything I don't mean. "'I have done a lot of dirty work with you people before "'and never got much of anything out of it. "'You were always too strong for me. "'That is, I couldn't force you without exposing my own crookedness. "'But now I've got you right where I want you. "'That's my price. Take it or leave it. If you don't take it now, the first two of those figures will be doubled when you do come to me. I won't go to anybody else, though others would be glad to get it on my terms. Because I have a reputation to maintain, and you are the only ones who know that I am crooked. I know that my reputation is safe as long as I work with you because I know enough about you to send you all big fellows clear down to Perkins away for life. I also know that knowledge will not shorten my days, as I am too valuable a man for you to kill, as you did. Please, doctor, don't use such language. Why not? interrupted Dequesny, in his cold, level voice. It's all true. What do a few lives amount to, as long as they're not yours or mine? As I said, I can trust you, more or less. You can trust me, because you know that I can't send you up without going with you. Therefore, I'm going to let you go ahead without me as far as you can. It won't be far. Do you want me to come in now, or later? I'm afraid we can't do business on any such terms as that, said Brookings, shaking his head. We can undoubtedly buy the power rights from Seaton for what you ask. You don't fool me for a second, Brookings. Go ahead and steal the solution, but take my advice and give your chemist only a little of it. A very little of that stuff will go a long way, and you will want to have some left when you have to call me in. Make him experiment with extremely small quantities. I would suggest that he work in the woods at least a hundred miles from his nearest neighbor. Though, it matters nothing to me how many people you kill. That's the only pointer I will give you. I'm giving it merely to keep you from blowing up the whole country, he concluded with a grim smile. Goodbye. As the door closed behind the cynical scientist... Brookings took a small gold instrument, very like a watch, from his pocket. He touched a button and held the machine close to his lips. Perkins, he said softly. Mr. Reynolds Crane has in his house a bottle of solution. Yes, sir. Can you describe it? Not exactly. It is greenish-yellow in color, And I gather that it in a small bottle, as there isn't much of the stuff in the world. I don't know what it smells or tastes like, and I wouldn't advise experimenting with it, as it seems to be a violent explosive and is probably poisonous. Any bottle of solution of that color kept in a particularly safe place would probably be the one. Let me caution you that this is the biggest thing you have ever been in and it must not fail. Any effort to purchase it would be useless however large a figure were named. If the bottle were only partly emptied and filled up with water I don't believe anyone would notice the difference at least for some time. Do you? Probably not sir. Goodbye. Next morning, shortly after the office opened, Perkins, whose principal characteristic was that of absolute noiselessness, glided smoothly into Brookings' office. Taking a small bottle, about half full of greenish-yellow liquid from his pocket, he furtively placed it under some papers upon his superior's desk. A man found this last night, sir, and thought it might belong to you. He said this was a little less than half of it, but that you could have the rest any time you wanted. Thank you, Perkins. He was right. It is ours. Here's a letter which just came, handing him an envelope, which rustled as Perkins folded it into a small compass and thrust it into his vest pocket. Good morning. As Perkins slid out, Brookings spoke into his telephone. And soon, Chambers, his chief chemist, appeared. Dr. Chambers, Brookings began, showing him the bottle. I have here a solution which in some way is capable of liberating the interatomic energy of matter, about which I asked you yesterday. It works on copper. I would like to have you work out the process for us, if you will. What about the man who discovered the process? asked Chambers as he touched the bottle gingerly. He is not available. Surely what one chemist can do, others can. You will not have to work alone. You can hire the biggest men in the line to help you. Expense is no object. No, it wouldn't be if such a process could be worked out. Let me see. Whom can we get? Dr. Seaton is probably the best man in the country for such research. But I don't think that we can get him. I tried to get him to work on the iridium-osmium problem, but he refused. We might make an offer big enough to get him. No. Don't mention it to him, with a significant look. He used to know nothing about it. Well then... How about Dequesne, who was in here yesterday? He's probably next to Seton. I took it up with him yesterday. We can't get him. His figures are entirely out of reason. Aren't there other men in the country who know anything? You're a good man. Why don't you tackle it yourself? Because I don't know anything about that particular line of research. And I want to keep on living a while longer," the chemist replied bluntly. There are other good men whom I can get, however. Von Schravendick, of our own laboratory, is nearly as good as either Seton or Dequesney. He has done a lot of work on radioactivity and that sort of thing, and I think he would like to work on it. All right. Please get it started without delay. Give him about a quarter of the solution and have the rest put into a vault. Be sure that his laboratory is set up far enough away from everything else to avoid trouble in case of an explosion, and caution him not to work on too much copper at once. I gather that an ounce or so will be plenty. The chemist went back to his laboratory and sought his first assistant. Then he began. Mr. Brookings has been listening to some lunatic who claims to have solved the mystery of liberating interatomic energy. That's old stuff, the assistant said, laughing. That and perpetual motion are always with us. What did you tell him? I didn't get a chance to tell him anything. He told me. Yesterday, you know. He asked me what would happen if it could be liberated. And I answered him truthfully, that lots of things would happen, and volunteered information that it was impossible. Just now he called me in, gave me this bottle of solution, saying that it contained the answer to the puzzle, and wanted me to work it out. I told him that it was out of my line, and that I was afraid of it, which I would be if I thought there was anything in it, but that it was way more or less in your line and he said to put you on it right away. He also said that expense was no object to set up an independent laboratory a hundred miles off in the woods to be safe in case of an explosion and to caution you not to use too much copper at once that an ounce or so would be plenty. An ounce. Ten thousand tons of nitroglycerin. I'll say an ounce would be plenty if the stuff is any good at all. Which, of course, it isn't. Queer, isn't it? How the old man would fall for anything like that. How did he explain the failure of the discoverer to develop it himself? He said the discoverer is not available, answered Chambers with a laugh. I'll bet he isn't available. He's back in St. Elizabeth's again by this time, where he came from. I suggested that we get either Seaton or DeQuizney of rare metals to help us on it, and he said that they both refused to touch it, or words to that effect. If those two turned down a chance to work on a thing as big as this would be, there probably is nothing in this particular solution that is worth a rap. But what Brookings says goes, around here, so it's you for the woods. And don't take any chances either it is conceivable that something might happen. Sure, it might, but it won't. We'll set up that lab near a good trout stream and I'll have a large and juicy vacation. I'll work on the stuff a little too, enough to make a good report, at least. I'll analyze it, find out what is in it, deposit it on some copper, shoot an electrolytic current through it, and make a lot of wise motions generally and have a darn good time besides. Chapter One The Occurrence of the Impossible Petrified with astonishment, Richard Seaton stared after the copper steam bath upon which he had been electrolyzing his solution of X, the unknown metal. For as soon as he had removed the beaker, the heavy bath had jumped n wise from under his hand as though it were alive. It had flown with terrific speed over the table, smashing apparatus and bottles of chemicals on its way, and was even now disappearing through the open window. he seized his prism binoculars and focused them upon the flying vessel, a speck in the distance. Through the glass, he saw that it did not fall to the ground, but continued on in a straight line, only its rapidly diminishing size showing the enormous velocity with which it was moving. It grew smaller and smaller, and in a few moments disappeared utterly. The chemist turned as though in a trance. How was this? The copper bath he had used for months was gone, gone like a shot, with nothing to make it go. Nothing, that is, except an electric cell and a few drops of the unknown solution. He looked at the empty space where it had stood, at the broken glass covering his laboratory table, and again stared out of the window. He was aroused from his stunned inaction by the entrance of his laboratory helper and silently motioned him to clean up the wreckage. What's happened, doctor? asked the assistant. Search me, Dan. I wish I knew myself, responded Seaton absently, lost in wonder at the incredible phenomenon of which he had just been witness. Ferdinand Skå a chemist employed in the next room entered breezily. Hello, Dickie. Thought I heard a racket in here, the newcomer remarked. Then he saw the helper busily mopping up the reeking mass of chemicals. Great balls of fire, he exclaimed. What have you been celebrating? Had an explosion? How, what, and why? I can tell you the what. And part of the how, Seaton replied thoughtfully. But as to the why, I'm completely in the dark. Here's all I know about it. And in a few words, he related the foregoing incident. Scott's face showed in turn interest, amazement, and pitying alarm. He took Seaton by the arm. Dick, old top, I never knew you to drink or dough but this stuff sure came out of either a bottle or a needle. Did you see a pink serpent carrying it away? Take my advice, old son. If you want to stay in Uncle Sam's service and lay off the stuff, whatever it is. It's bad enough to come down here so far gone that you wreck most of your apparatus and lose the rest of it, but to pull a yarn like that is going too far. The chief will have to ask for your resignation, sure, why don't you take a couple of days of your leave and straighten up? Seaton paid no attention to him, and Scott returned to his own laboratory, shaking his head sadly. Seaton, with his mind in a whirl, walked slowly to his deck, picked up his blackened and battered briar pipe, and sat down to study out what he had done, or... What could possibly have happened to result in such an unbelievable infraction of all the laws of mechanics and gravitation? He knew that he was sober and sane, that the thing had actually happened. But why and how? All his scientific training told him that it was impossible. It was unthinkable that an inert mass of metal should fly off into space without any applied force. Since it had actually happened, there must have been applied an enormous and hitherto unknown force. What was that force? The reason for this unbelievable manifestation of energy was certainly somewhere in the solution, the electrolytic cell or the steam bath. Concentrating all the power of this highly trained analytical mind upon the problem, deaf and blind to everything else, As was his wont when deeply interested, he sat motionless with the forgotten pipe clenched between his teeth. Hour after hour he sat there, while most of his fellow chemists finished the day's work and left the building and the room slowly darkened with the coming of night. Finally he jumped up, crashing his hand down upon the desk. He exclaimed, I have liberated the intraatomic energy of copper. Copper x and electric current. I'm sure a fool for luck he continued as a new thought struck him. Suppose it had been liberated all at once probably blown the whole world off its hinges but it wasn't it was given off slowly and in a straight line wonder why talk about power Infinite. Believe me, I'll show this whole Bureau of Chemistry something to make their eyes stick out tomorrow. If they won't let me go ahead and develop it, I'll resign, hunt up some more X, and do it myself. That bath is on its way to the moon right now, and there's no reason why I can't follow it. Martin's such a fanatic on exploration who fall over himself to build us any kind of craft we'll need. We'll explore the whole solar system. Great cat, what a chance. A fool for luck is right. He came to himself with a start. He switched on the lights and saw that it was ten o'clock. Simultaneously he recalled that he was to have dinner with his fiancee at her home, their first dinner since their engagement. Cursing himself for an idiot, he hastily left the building, and soon his motorcycle was tearing up Connecticut Avenue toward his sweetheart's home. Chapter 2 Steel Becomes Interested Dr. Mark DeQuesney was in his laboratory, engaged in research upon certain of the rare metals particularly in regard to their electrochemical properties. He was a striking figure, well over six feet tall, unusually broad-shouldered even for his height. He was plainly a man of enormous physical strength. His thick, slightly wavy hair was black. His eyes, only a trifle lighter in the shade, were surmounted by heavy black eyebrows which grew together above his aquiline nose. Scott strolled into the room, finding Dequezny leaning over a delicate electrical instrument, his forbidding but handsome face strangely illuminated by the ghastly glare of his mercury-vapor arcs. Hello, Scott began. I thought it was Seaton here at first. A fellow has to see your faces to tell you two apart. Speaking of Seaton, do you think that he's quite right? I should say, offhand, that he was a little out of control last night and this morning, replied DeQuesney, manipulating connections with his long, muscular fingers. I don't think that he's insane. I don't believe that he dopes. Probably overwork and nervous strain. He'll be all right in a day or two. I think he's a plain nut myself. That sure was a wild yarn he sprung on us, wasn't it? His imagination was hitting on all twelve, that's sure. He seems to believe it himself, though, in spite of making a flat failure of his demonstration to us this morning. He saved that waste solution he was working on, what was left of that carboy of platinum residues after he had recovered all the values, you know, and got them to put it up at auction this noon. He resigned from the Bureau, and he and Mr. Reynolds Crane, that millionaire friend of his, bid on it for ten cents. Mr. Reynolds Crane, Dequesne concealed a start of surprise. Where does he come in on this? Oh, they're always together in everything. They've been thicker than Damon and Pythias for a long time. They play tennis together. They're doubles champions of the district, you know and all kinds of things. Wherever you find one of them, you'll usually find the other. Anyway, after they got the solution, Crane took seat in his car, and somebody said that they went out to Crane's house, probably trying to humor him. Well, Tata, I've got a week's work to do yet today. As Scott laughed, D'Quizny dropped his work and went to his desk with a new expression, half of chagrin, half of admiration on his face. Picking up his telephone, he called a number. Brookings, he asked, cautiously. This is D'Quizny. I must see you immediately. There's something big started that might as well belong to us. No, can't say anything over the telephone. Yes, I'll be right out. He left the laboratory and soon was in his private office of the head of the Washington or diplomatic branch, as it was known in certain circles of the great World Steel Corporation. Offices and laboratories were maintained in the city, ostensibly for research work, but in reality to be near to the center of political activity. How do you do, Dr. Dequesny? Brookings said as he seated the visitor. You seem excited. Not excited, but in a hurry, DeQuizny replied. The biggest thing in history has just broken, and we've got to work fast if we get in on it. Have you any doubts that I always know what I am talking about? No, answered the other in surprise. Not the slightest you are widely known as an able man. In fact, you have helped this company several times in various deal, or in various ways. Say it, Brookings. Deals is the right word. This one is going to be the biggest ever. The beauty of it is that it should be easy. One simple burglary and an equally simple killing. It won't mean wholesale murder, as did that. Oh no, doctor. Not murder. Unavoidable accidents. Why not call things by their right names and save breath, as long as we're alone? I'm not squeamish. But to get down to business. You know Seton, of our division, of course. He has been recovering the various rare metals from all the residues that have accumulated in the Bureau for years. After separating out all the known metals, he had something left and thought it was a new element, a metal. In one of his attempts to get it into a metallic state, a little of its solution fizzed out and over a copper steam bath or tank, which instantly flew out of the window like a bullet. It went clear out of sight, out of range of his binoculars just that quick. He snapped his fingers under Brooking's nose. Now that discovery means such power as the world never dreamed of. In fact, if Seaton hadn't had all the luck in the world with him yesterday, he would have blown half of North America off the map. Chemists have known for years that all matter contains enormous stores of intraatomic energy, but have always considered it bound, that is, incapable of liberation. Seaton has liberated it. And that means... that with the process worked out, the corporation could furnish power to the entire world, at very little expense. A look of scornful unbelief passed over Brookings' face. Sneer if you like, quesney continued evenly. Your ignorance doesn't change the fact in any particular... Do you know what intraatomic energy is? I'm afraid that I don't exactly. Well, it's the force that exists between the ultimate component parts of matter, if you can understand that. A child ought to. Call in your chief chemist and ask him what would happen if somebody would liberate the intraatomic energy of 100 pounds of copper. Pardon me, doctor. I didn't presume to doubt you. I will call him in. He telephoned a request, and soon a man in white appeared. In response to the question, he thought for a moment, then smiled slowly. If it were done instantaneously, it would probably blow the entire world into a vapor, and might force it clear out of its orbit. If it could be controlled, it would furnish millions of horsepower for a long time. But it can't be done. The energy is bound. Its liberation is an impossibility, in the same class with perpetual motion. Is that all, Mr. Brookings? As the chemist left, Brookings turned again to his visitor, with an apologetic air. I don't know anything about these things myself, but Chambers, also an able man, says that it is impossible. As far as he knows, he is right. I should have said the same thing this morning, but I do know about these things. There's my business, and I tell you that Seton has done it. This is getting interesting. Did you see it done? No, it was rumored around the bureau last night that Seaton was going insane, that he had wrecked a lot of his apparatus and couldn't explain what had happened. This morning, he called a lot of us into his laboratory, told us what I have just told you, and poured some of his solution on a copper wire. Nothing happened, and he acted as though he didn't know what to make of it. The foolish way he acted and the apparent impossibility of the whole thing made everybody think him crazy. I thought so until I learned this afternoon that Mr. Reynolds Crane is backing him. Then I knew that he had told us just enough of the truth to let him get away clean with the solution. But suppose the man is crazy, asked Brookings. He probably is a monomaniac. Really insane on that one thing from studying it so much. Seton? Yes. He's crazy. Like a fox. You never heard of any insanity in Crane's family, though, did you? You know that he never invests a cent in anything more risky than government bonds. You can bet your last dollar that Seaton showed him the real goods. then, as a look of conviction appeared upon the other's face. He continued. Don't you understand that the solution was government property, and he had to do something to make everybody think it worthless, so that he could get title to it? That fake demonstration that failed was certainly a bold stroke, so bold that it was foolhardy. But it worked. It fooled even me, and I am not usually asleep. The only reason he got away with it is that he has always been such an open-faced talker, always telling everything he knew. He certainly played the fox, he continued, with undisguised admiration. Heretofore, he has never kept any of his discoveries secret or tried to make any money out of them, though some of them were worth millions. He published them as soon as he found them, And somebody else got the money. Having that reputation, he worked it to make us think him a nut. He certainly is clever. I take off my hat to him. He's a wonder. And what is your idea? Where do we come in? You come in by getting that solution away from Seton and Crane, and furnishing the money to develop the stuff and to build under my direction, such a power plant as the world never saw before. Why get that particular solution? Couldn't we buy up some platinum wastes and refine them? Not a chance, replied the scientist. We have refined platinum residues for years and never found anything like that before. It is my idea that the stuff Whatever it is, was present in some particular lot of platinum in considerable quantities as an impurity. Seton has an all of it there is in the world, of course, but the chance of finding any more of it without knowing exactly what it is or how it reacts is extremely slight. Besides, we must have exclusive control. How could we make any money out of it if Crane operates a rival company and dissatisfied with ten percent profit. No, we must get all that solution. Seaton and Crane, or Seaton at least, must be killed. For if he is left alive, he can find more of the stuff and break our monopoly. I want to borrow your strong-arm squad tonight, and go and attend to it. After a few moments' thought. His face set and expressionless, Brookings said. No, doctor, I do not think that the corporation would care to go into a matter of this kind. It is too flagrant a violation of law and we can afford to buy it from Seaton after he proves its worth. Bah, snorted DeQuizny. Don't try that on me, Brookings. You think you can steal it yourself and develop it without letting me in on it? You can't do it. Do you think I am a fool enough to tell you all about it, with facts and figures and names, if you could get away with it without me? Hardly. You can steal the solution, but that's all you can do. Your chemist, or the expert you hire, will begin experimenting without Seton's lucky star, which I have already mentioned, but about which I haven't gone into any detail. He will have no information whatever, and the first attempt to do anything with the other stuff will blow him and all the country around him for miles into an impalpable powder. You will lose your chemist, your solution, and all hope of getting the process. There are only two men in the United States, or in the world for that matter, with brains enough and information enough to work it out. One is Richard B. Seaton. The other is Mark C. Dequesney. Seton Lee certainly won't handle it for you. Money can't buy him and Crane, and you know it. You must come to me. If you don't believe that now, you will very shortly, after you try it alone. Brookings, caught in his duplicity and half convinced of the truth of Dequesney's statements, still temporized. "'You're modest, aren't you, doctor?' he asked, smiling. "'Modest? No,' said the other calmly. "'Modesty never got anybody anything but praise, "'and I prefer something more substantial. "'However, I never exaggerate or make overstatements, "'as you should know. "'What I have said is merely a statement of fact. "'Also, let me remind you that I am in a hurry.' The difficulty of getting hold of that solution is growing greater every minute, and my price is getting higher every second. What is your price at the present second? $10,000 per month during the experimental work, $5 million in cash upon the successful operation of the first power unit, which shall be of not less than 10,000 horsepower, and 10% of the profits. Oh, come, doctor. Let's be reasonable. You can't mean any such figures as those. I never say anything I don't mean. I have done a lot of dirty work with you people before and never got much of anything out of it. You were always too strong for me. That is, I couldn't force you without exposing my own crookedness. But now I've got you right where I want you. That's my price. Take it or leave it. If you don't take it now, the first two of those figures will be doubled when you do come to me. I won't go to anybody else, though others would be glad to get it on my terms. Because I have a reputation to maintain, and you are the only ones who know that I am crooked. I know that my reputation is safe as long as I work with you because I know enough about you to send you all big fellows clear down to Perkins away for life. I also know that knowledge will not shorten my days, as I am too valuable a man for you to kill, as you did. Please, doctor, don't use such language. Why not? Interrupted Dukesne in his cold, level voice. It's all true. What do a few lives amount to, as long as they're not yours or mine? As I said, I can trust you, more or less. You can trust me, because you know that I can't send you up without going with you. Therefore, I'm going to let you go ahead without me, as far as you can. It won't be far. Do you want me to come in now, or later? I'm afraid we can't do business on any such terms as that, said Brookings, shaking his head. We can undoubtedly buy the power rights from Seaton for what you ask. You don't fool me for a second, Brookings. Go ahead and steal the solution, but take my advice and give your chemist only a little of it. A very little of that stuff will go a long way, and you will want to have some left when you have to call me in make him experiment with extremely small quantities. I would suggest that he work in the woods at least a hundred miles from his nearest neighbor. Though, it matters nothing to me how many people you kill. That's the only pointer I will give you. I'm giving it merely to keep you from blowing up the whole country, he concluded with a grim smile. Goodbye. As the door closed behind the cynical scientist Brookings took a small gold instrument, very like a watch, from his pocket. He touched a button and held the machine close to his lips. Perkins, he said softly. Mr. Reynolds Crane has in his house a bottle of solution. Yes, sir. Can you describe it? Not exactly. It is greenish-yellow in color, And I gather that it in a small bottle, as there isn't much of the stuff in the world. I don't know what it smells or tastes like, and I wouldn't advise experimenting with it, as it seems to be a violent explosive and is probably poisonous. Any bottle of solution of that color kept in a particularly safe place would probably be the one. Let me caution you that this is the biggest thing you have ever been in, and it must not fail. Any effort to purchase it would be useless, however large a figure were named. And if the bottle were only partly emptied and filled up with water, I don't believe anyone would notice the difference. At least for some time. Do you? Probably not, sir. Goodbye. Next morning, shortly after the office opened, Perkins, whose principal characteristic was that of absolute noiselessness, glided smoothly into Brookings' office. Taking a small bottle, about half full of greenish-yellow liquid from his pocket, he furtively placed it under some papers upon his superior's desk. A man found this last night, sir, and thought it might belong to you. He said this was a little less than half of it, but that you could have the rest any time you wanted. Thank you, Perkins. He was right. It is ours. Here's a letter which just came, handing him an envelope, which rustled as Perkins folded it into a small compass and thrust it into his vest pocket. Good morning. As Perkins slid out, Brookings spoke into his telephone. And soon, Chambers, his chief chemist, appeared. Dr. Chambers, Brookings began, showing him the bottle. I have here a solution which in some way is capable of liberating the interatomic energy of matter, about which I asked you yesterday. It works on copper. I would like to have you work out the process for us, if you will. What about the man who discovered the process, asked Chambers, as he touched the bottle, gingerly? He is not available. Surely what one chemist can do, others can. You will not have to work alone. You can hire the biggest men in the line to help you. Expense is no object. No, it wouldn't be, if such a process could be worked out. Let me see. Whom can we get? Dr. Seaton is probably the best man in the country for such research. But I don't think that we can get him. I tried to get him to work on the iridium-osmium problem, but he refused. We might make an offer big enough to get him. No, don't mention it to him, with a significant look. He used to know nothing about it. Well then, how about Dequesny, who was in here yesterday? He's probably next to Seaton. I took it up with him yesterday. We can't get him. His figures are entirely out of reason. Aren't there other men in the country who know anything? You're a good man. Why don't you tackle it yourself? because I don't know anything about that particular line of research, and I want to keep on living a while longer, the chemist replied bluntly. There are other good men whom I can get, however. Vaughn Schravendick, of our own laboratory, is nearly as good as either Seaton or Dequesne. He has done a lot of work on radioactivity and that sort of thing, and I think he would like to work on it. All right. Please get it started without delay. Give him about a quarter of the solution and have the rest put into a vault. Be sure that his laboratory is set up far enough away from everything else to avoid trouble in case of an explosion. And caution him not to work on too much copper at once. I gather that an ounce or so will be plenty. The chemist went back to his laboratory and sought his first assistant. Van, he began. Mr. Brookings has been listening to some lunatic who claims to have solved the mystery of liberating interatomic energy. That's old stuff, the assistant said, laughing. That and perpetual motion are always with us. What did you tell him? I didn't get a chance to tell him anything. He told me. Yesterday, you know. He asked me what would happen if it could be liberated and I answered him truthfully that lots of things would happen and volunteered information that it was impossible. Just now he called me in, gave me this bottle of solution saying that it contained the answer to the puzzle and wanted me to work it out. I told him that it was out of my line and that I was afraid of it which I would be if I thought there was anything in it, but that is way more or less in your line, and he said to put you on it right away. He also said that expense was no object to set up an independent laboratory a hundred miles off in the woods to be safe in case of an explosion, and to caution you not to use too much copper at once, that an ounce or so would be plenty. An ounce... 10,000 tons of nitroglycerin. I'll say an ounce will be plenty, if the stuff is any good at all. Which, of course, it isn't. Queer, isn't it? How the old man would fall for anything like that. How did he explain the failure of the discoverer to develop it himself? He said the discoverer is not available, answered Chambers with a laugh. I'll bet he isn't available, He's back in St. Elizabeth's again by this time, where he came from. I suggested that we get either Seton or DeQuizny of rare metals to help us on it, and he said that they both refused to touch it, or words to that effect. If those two turned down a chance to work on a thing as big as this would be, there probably is nothing in this particular solution that is worth a rap. But what Brookings says goes, around here. So it's you for the woods. And don't take any chances either. It is conceivable that something might happen. Sure, it might. But it won't. We'll set up that lab near a good trout stream... And I'll have a large and juicy vacation. I'll work on the stuff a little too. Enough to make a good report, at least. I'll analyze it. Find out what is in it. Deposit it on some copper shoot an electrolytic current through it and make a lot of wise motions generally and have a darn good time besides. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.